Welcome to Unboxy World, the podcast where philosophy meets tech. In each episode, we're connecting the dots between philosophy, technology, society, science, and progressive thought. And together with brilliant minds across the world who dare to challenge the way we think and live in today's society, we are unboxing our minds one episode at a time. I am Ria Salting. I am a tech professional during the day and a philosopher at night. And if you enjoy this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to the newsletter to never miss the latest unboxed episode. So let's get started. Let's unbox ourselves. Welcome to the show. So today we actually have the perfect guest for this podcast uh, on the topic of where philosophy meets tech. And I was looking for a guest who could teach the exact topic on how to teach artificial intelligence more on ethics. Then I found Devin Gonier from the US who is working in tech. And so he's the CTO at a machine learning company. And he also has a double major in philosophy and religion. And he hosted a TED Talk about this topic. How do you teach artificial intelligence moral ethics? And how can you turn to philosophy to find the answer? He also has a master's in machine learning from Columbia University. And he's very passionate about philosophy. In fact, he argues that artificial intelligence is the best way to do philosophy in our modern generation. So how do you teach artificial intelligence moral ethics? Is there an absolute truth, a so-called axiom in philosophical term that you can hard code into the algorithm? What is right or wrong? Not even philosophers have agreed on one definition. So is it then even possible to teach machines moral ethics? Or if there is no absolute truth, can we apply the same learning techniques that we as humans learn what's right and wrong when we're kids and replicate that to machines? And as this is such a complex matter, how do we keep machines safe? And Devin is very interested and passionate about AI safety in particular to make sure that machines are built for and not against humanity. So at the end of the episode, he shares an interesting thought experiment where the answer on how to keep machines safe could, in fact, be found in, surprisingly enough, in religion. So in today's episode, you will learn more about how we can teach artificial intelligence moral ethics, how the answer could, in fact, be found in how we as humans learn what is good and bad what AI safety is, why philosophy could be an increasingly important subject to study in a world powered by AI. And lastly, how a world built for humanity, not against, could look like powered by AI. This interview has brought a lot of aha moments to me and Devin, who is very knowledgeable on this topic has shared many insights on what we need to do to keep AI safe and how to teach it to become human. 
artificial intelligence can be a blessing for humanity if we design it the right way. However, it is up to us to make that happen. Luckily, though, there are people out there like Devin who are very passionate about teaching us how to do that. So I'm very excited to, to share this episode with you today. It has been very insightful. So let's get started. So hello, uh, Devin Gonier, uh, CTO of WageUp. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm uh, really excited to to have you here today and uh, uh, explain more about uh, applying philosophy to technology. Um, so, yeah, sorry. Oh, it's definitely a passion of mine, too. I can put yeah. I'm, I'm excited as well. <laughs> So, um, I mean, to start off, uh, just uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. So you um, you have a master's degree uh, in computer science from Columbia University, and then you also have a double major in philosophy and religion. And now you're also the CTO of a consultancy firm um, called WageUp. And you have also been teaching uh, philosophy and religion. Uh, so... I'm curious. So, what's the what's the red thread? Uh, why the combination of technology, philosophy, and religion? Yeah. So, even when I was um, quite young, I was always passionate about uh, philosophy. In high school, I kind of discovered philosophy, and for a long time, wanted to be a philosophy professor. Mm. Uh, late, later on in life, I sort of realized that academia was perhaps not not for me for a few different reasons. Um, but I saw a unique opportunity to do philosophy with mm. computer science because right now, this this generation, this time period, we're on the cusp of an amazing discovery. Mm. We have the potential to bring a new thinking thing into this world. And I think that that is um, an incredible opportunity. You know, philosophy explores all sorts of subjects related to that, uh, the you know, ethics surrounding that, metaphysics, mm -hmm. the philosophy of mind, epistemology. And so working with the project of bringing that new thinking thing into, into, our, into our world is essentially doing philosophy mm -hmm. uh, in, a, in a rare instance of not necessarily teaching it or using it in your own personal life or in political circumstances, but a, an opportunity to bring about a new way of thinking. And as far as religion, I've always, my, my specific interest in religion have always been with Buddhism. Mm. Um, that's what I focused on as an undergrad. Mm. And I think Buddhist, Buddhism, specifically Buddhist philosophy, has a lot to offer the subject as well. Yeah. Um, you know, for thousands of years, Buddhists have studied the mind. And they have a lot to say about uh, the mind in general. And so I think there's an opportunity to take some of that insight in what is traditionally seen as a very Western discipline. Um, and apply it in interesting ways to the field of artificial intelligence. So that's kind of how the all three sort of subjects interweave for me. Mm. I like how you uh, you explain it in a very simple way. Like I I agree with you that on the on the intersection between technology and philosophy, but I've been struggling to explain it. But it was a very simple way of saying that you're actually bringing a thinking thing into the world. I uh, that, 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 I like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's um, a very special yeah. opportunity mm -hmm. in, in the hu history of humanity. 
Yeah. I mean, we're we're in a very unique uh, inflection point where uh, our generation, or at least you know my daughter's generation, mm-hmm. will experience um, something truly incredible—a new way of thinking, a new thinking thing—and that's no other moment in history has been like that. And I think that that provides a very unique opportunity for philosophers to explore. Mm. Yeah. Is there, um, are there, is this um, a new kind of rising um, area? Um, like are more and more people getting um, um, the eyes on this, so to say? Yes. Mm. Um, I think, you know, I think there is a raising, you know, a, an increasing interest in the field mm-hmm. um, and many of these subjects. People are sort of realizing the potential of artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. but the extent to which um, the intersection with philosophy is is happening, I think, is people can kind of more easily understand the connection now. Mm-hmm. But it still seems a little bit foreign to the average uh, person who hasn't delved deep into the subject. So I hope that that changes, and I think people will start to see how it changes mm-hmm. as it touches on various ethical aspects of her life, yeah. and as people start to realize that, uh, wow, this this is an actual you know mm-hmm. thinking entity, yeah. you know even ethical questions about like, you know, is it immoral to, you know, shut off a computer that theoretically could experience suffering from an act like that? Mm-hmm. Um, I think ethics in general has always been a Uh, a subject of moral progress in which mm. sort of the the idea of suffering expands over time. And so there's just a lot of reasons why I think that it's it's going to become more in the um, mm. social narrative, the the way in which we think about our world, a more crucial aspect of where people see that intersection more clearly. Mm. Yeah, interesting. So I think um, so. Then because you you did a host talk, uh, a TED talks, a TEDx talk <laughs> in mm-hmm. Austin. Um, um, so you actually talked about this then um, about um, how to teach artificial intelligence, moral ethics, and, and you applied it to philosophy. So um, could you tell us more about that talk? Um, how do you actually teach how do artificial intelligence, moral ethics? Sure. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, so I think that that the talk really tried to hammer home uh, a few different key points. Uh, the first was um, that this is a significant topic, that it's worth paying attention to, and that it really needs more attention. Um, I I feel like it's significant enough to be you know comparable to issues facing the world on on the scale of something like global warming. It's it's that significant, um, and this is because uh, of a few different reasons. First, we're already encountering ethical issues with artificial intelligence on relatively small scales, um, whether it's biases in uh, training sets that affect um, the justice system, or uh, you know making certain decisions on broad social issues or whether it's a, a driverless car that swerves left versus right to crash into a crowd of people or save the, the, the driver. Um, those, are, those are issues that are before us that we are experiencing right now. But 
On top of that, there is this greater concern about AI safety uh, on the long run and where, uh, where the field could go. Um, there's a couple of different uh, interesting uh, kind of think, thought experiments. One, one you know, frame of reference that people often allude to is a cartoon um, called uh, from Fantasia with uh, Mickey Mouse in it, actually, in which uh, Mickey Mouse is asked to kind of clean up the, his wizard master's studio and cast a spell on a broom to help him out. But things quickly get out of hand and the brooms start to multiply. And before long, Mickey Mouse is drowning in bath water. So we, I worry, and many others worry, that uh, we could be like Mickey Mouse, um, building this amazing tool to accomplish a seemingly benign, positive goal, and then things get out of hand, and next thing we know, you know, we're the victim of some sort of existential crisis. Um, this is often an example of this, uh, that, uh, another example of this brought up by uh, thinker Nick Bostrom in his book, Super Intelligence, you know, says, imagine we, you know, create a computer that's as smart or smarter than humans. Um, and then we give it a simple task like manufacture paper clips. Well, it's going to pursue that goal aggressively. Um, and it's going to, and without boundary. And before long, it may be, you know, destroying companies. It may be destroying cities. It may be destroying planets, all for the purpose of creating paper clips. Because it doesn't have the human intuition to know that while paper clips, clips are, are great, they're not more important than all of human civilization. Um, and so how do we get a computer to internalize and understand those ethical constraints? So um, this is a challenge and this, is, this has no easy answer. Um, but one, one area that shows probably the most promise is to use reinforcement learning, which is a particular kind of machine learning uh, uh, model that takes actions and evaluates whether they should be rewarded positively or negatively, or more positive than another action would be. And the computer develops a policy based on environmental circumstances that uh, kind of help it determine what actions to take in what situations. Um, one variety of reinforcement learning that especially shows promise and was, I think, initially uh, talked about by Stuart Russell, who is also a big proponent for AI safety and wrote the, the main textbook on artificial intelligence. It's called Cooperative Inverse Reinforcement Learning. So cooperative inverse reinforcement learning is this idea that instead of you giving a computer a reward function, mm -hmm. you teach a computer to develop its own reward function. And you do this by providing the computer with a situation and then having the computer make a choice and then having a human evaluate that choice as good or bad. And over time, the computer learns what is good or bad about certain choices. So it kind of creates a reward function from those interactions. Mm. Um, the advantage of this is it, it we no longer need to necessarily explicitly define rules for morality, like saying never lie. 
um, because there are circumstances in which it is appropriate to tell a lie. It's okay to tell, you know, the Nazi at the front door that I am, that I do not have, I'm not harboring any Jews whenever I am, but it's not okay to lie to my wife. Hmm. So most humans can understand the distinction and a computer could kind of internalize and understand those over time. So that's that's the advantage cooperative inverse reinforcement learning presents. The problem with this is that morality evolves over time. Mm-hmm. And if you and it's not necessarily about popularity. So if we think about you know what was morally popular 200 years ago versus what is morally popular today, we mm-hmm. see a big difference. And that would suggest that that's moral progress. Mm-hmm. Um, and we would hope, that we don't want to kind of lock a machine into one, you know, time period's perspective on morality. We want to enable that machine to have moral reasoning abilities. So we need to kind of accomplish both, you know, get the human intuition of morality at the same time as providing the machine with the ability to reason about morality so that it can come to its own evolved conclusions over time. Mm. So I think that's, that's, that's kind of, so, to go back to the original question about the talk, you know, with the significance of morality uh, in, in the, the, the presence of, of ethics and artificial intelligence, um, the, the need to stay away from moral formulas and to focus on, you know, understanding moral morality as an education, as a process, as an evolution. And then uh, using techniques like on the, in, the, in the same spectrum as reinforcement learning to help teach these over time. Hmm. So uh, I guess then kind of what you are doing is that you are uh, trying to to simulate just the same way that we as humans are learning um, from reactions when we're kids uh, and grown-ups as well. Um, So would that mean um, actually that the computer could potentially become more moral and ethic? Because obviously, like, uh, we humans are also, mm-hmm. we're not error-free. Or <laughs> of course, yeah. Um, no, that's a great point. Yeah. And, a, and also a bit of a scary point to think about, if you think about it. I mean, let's say, you know, uh, anthropocentrism is the what view. A, what is that? Anthropocentrism is the view that um, humans are the pinnacle of existence. Okay, that okay. Um, seeing the world entirely from the human's perspective. Mm-hmm. So a lot of environmental uh, philosophers who work in environmental justice mm-hmm. are critical of these ideas. So, you know, um, hurting a human is worse than hurting a, a dog, for example. Okay. Gotcha. Now, a computer might have a more evolved, you know, we kind of can't help it to a certain extent. Our, our natural tendency leans towards anthropocentric ways of seeing things. But a computer may decide that we're destroying the planet, we're killing, you know, billions of other species and, and animals, and that the most moral thing to do is to prevent us from destroying these animals. And so may find that the most moral thing to do is to eliminate humanity in a way. Um, but also, you know, that's that's an extreme version, but also could recognize that we have our own extraordinary biases. Uh, um, and help point out those biases. And it's not necessarily negative, could also be very positive. But I think that you're absolutely right. A machine over the long run 
especially if it develops the capacity for moral reasoning, mm-hmm. may end up being more moral than we are. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a very interesting thought to have. Mm-hmm. And it kind of, you know, the subject kind of begs the question of, um, of moral authority. Mm-hmm. Do we um, have the authority to teach a computer morality? You know, I mean, um, and by this, I mean, you know, are we do immoral things all the time and we, mm-hmm. uh, we make decisions and, and uh, many people, approximately 80% of the population um, are religious and see morality, moral authority coming from some sort of higher power. We are kind of inserting ourselves in that role here, basically saying that we are the moral um the ultimate moral say so we are defining morality for this computer and i think it's interesting to think about our role as moral teachers and whether we really ought to be those moral teachers i mean there's no other one to teach in this situation but it is an interesting philosophical question to ask whether we ought Mm -hmm. to be or not um and yeah and just thinking about uh in the same vein um how, how does morality get enforced over the long run, right? So um, how do we ensure that, that, that the machine maybe will understand and develop an intuition of morality, but how do, will we ensure that this gets followed 200 years from now? Difficult questions to ask. Um, yeah, so I mean, it's, it's a very, it's a challenging, challenging subject area for sure. Mm. So if we or, or the machine succeed at the, you know actually becoming super like the super moral um, um, human machine, however you want to explain. Um, so you brought up the case um, like with the extreme and towards the you know the, the dangers of it, but what actually could be the possibilities if if it actually becomes um, um, even smarter and actually you know keep on creating good for humanity in tune with nature. Um, like what are the, what are the possibilities then? Oh yeah. I mean, um, I think that there's incredibly positive mm-hmm. potential as well, which is why I actually think that it's um, on the scale of global warming and significance, because it's not always bad. It's also very potentially good. Mm-hmm. So the scale of impact. Yeah. From very bad to very good is is a very broad scale. Um, We could see social transformations in terms of better political systems. We could see, Mm -hmm. you know, capitalism as an institution may, um, you know, Hegel always talked about, and Marx basically took Hegel and applied applied it to economics. So I think that, you know, the the thing that, that Marx did and Hegel did is recognize that economics evolves and changes over time. And capitalism is perhaps just one stage of that evolution. Mm. We could see the rise of artificial intelligence as making our current modern day version of capitalism as obsolete, as old. Mm. Whenever we have machines that can produce everything that we need, um, whenever we uh, our society gets restructured, we could see we could find ourselves in a society in which people pursue art or philosophy or mm-hmm. music or 
all these aspects that that are human expressions and don't need to worry about ensuring that food is on the table. Mm -hmm. um, there's very much, I think, the potential for that as well. Mm -hmm. Because super intelligence or this idea of an, of an entity that's more intelligent, potentially exponentially mm -hmm. so than we are, mm -hmm. um, unlocks incredible potential mm -hmm. for our world. Mm -hmm. So I, we could imagine a more moral super intelligence um, capable of revolutionizing every aspect of human society and enabling us to explore more of the universe, enabling us to uh, explore more of the human side of things that we often don't get an opportunity to do because we have to put food on the table. Mm. So I think there's an incredibly yep. Yep. positive side to this as well, absolutely. Mm. Um, I think it's just as important as it, as it is to recognize and appreciate the danger, it's important to, to aspire for the positive. Yeah. Uh, progress doesn't come for free, right? So you have to. Correct, yeah. yeah. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so, um, so, so just to give the, the context, some context for the listeners. So I think that um, I mean, within moral and ethics philosophy, there are different um, um, different paths or 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 um, philosophical thinking. Like there's utility. You tell me, I can't pronounce it now in English. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. Where you're optimizing for as much good as a total for 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 everyone. Um, there, there's a lot of different thinking around within um, uh, how you can apply um, moral ethics. Um, but I think that the 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 the, the overarching uh, theme is that. Um, all these different moral philosophers can't agree on on one single uh, way of thinking around this. Um, so, um, and, and what you're trying to find is this uh, ultimate truth, right? So, what is right and wrong? Um, called the axiom um, um, within in philosophical terms, but it's ultimately the, the 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 underlying truth from which you can build everything else from. But if now, if you not even humans can agree on on one um, one way of uh, evaluating moral ethics, and how do you teach a machine? Like, what is the absolute like hard coded truth? Like, how do you try to teach? Um, uh, how do, how so, do you apply that in the code? Sure. Yeah. Um, I think the first step is to abandon the idea of achieving success with discovering some sort of absolute moral truth. Mm, okay. Um, okay. I'm sort of agnostic to the idea, meaning I don't think that if it, if there is some sort of absolute moral truth, if that idea is a sensible one, I don't know if we could ever know if we've had it or, or if we have achieved it, <laughs> mm, if we yeah, have discovered yeah. it. It's sort of, um, you know, un, unknowable if we have reached that point. Uh, instead, instead of teaching a computer a moral truth, you, I think the, the, we need to reframe it into teaching a computer how to learn. So how to discover and think about morality, mm. um, how to reason through morality. Um, you know, I've often played around with this idea, you know, when it comes to my own personal ethics and perspectives. Um, I really like um, existentialism uh, by thinking what is like, that? What is uh, that? Jean-Paul Sartre. Um, 
it's and, and many others, um, Simone de Beauvoir, Albert Camus, uh, Kierkegaard. These are all philosophers that that ad, Nietzsche that advocate for existentialism. And existentialism, I think, is probably best captured by uh, Sartre's famous saying that existence precedes essence, which means that we're born without a purpose, and we discover that purpose as we go, mm. um, and that we discover morality for ourselves, that we, um, it's not a sort of pure subjectivity necessarily, but it is definitely on the spectrum of subjectivity. It's, I'm discovering my own kind of ethical playbook and I can potentially use that playbook in understanding how other people behave as well. And I think that there's an opportunity to think about it, artificial intelligence more in that vein which is, you know, we may be kind of planting a seed, but we're not necessarily locking a computer into one moral path or one moral truth. Mm. We're unlocking the capacity for developing mm. morality over time, for reasoning through it over, over the long run. So staying away from this idea of hard coding moral principles um, and, and moving more in the direction of, um, moral reasoning in general. Mm. If I was cornered into being explicit about specific moral principles, I would probably lean more in the direction of trying to think about moral values. Mm. So for example, Aristotelian ethics teaches about uh, moral values, courage, uh, um, love, uh, all these different mm. ways of thinking about ethics not as hard and fast rules, but values we attempt to maximize. Yeah. And I would probably just pick one value. And I, I would say that's compassion. And this is mm. coming from my background in Buddhism. Yeah. I think that yeah. if there's one simple expression of ethics, it's that we ought to maximize compassion. And what that means is highly interpretable and highly situational, right? But I think mm. that artificial intelligence, if we had to, if we had to start from one basic simple principle, I think I would start with that, which is how does one become more compassionate? Um, yeah. Yeah, I like that. And there's an opportunity for that to evolve as well. You know, I mean, um, whether it's that we have a more expansive view because we are becoming less anthropocentric or less racist or less sexist or whatever, mm. that is our concept of compassion evolving over time to encompass more and more people, to reframe our perspective and how we relate to one another. Mm. So this, the same principle of compassion is there, but just what it means and how it's expressed mm. is different. Mm. So hopefully we find a way to teach a computer to, to, think, to think about morality, to reason about morality, mm. to have intuition about morality through things like cooperative versus reinforcement learning. Mm. And we ground it in some sort of Vague, vague value basis that's expansive and interpretable enough to grow over time and not based on some sort of hard-coded formula. So maybe it could even be so that you take inspiration from all these different uh, philosophical uh, learnings or teach um, and apply over time. Um, mm -hmm. What it makes the most sense um, from a compassionate view? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's um nice. I um so it's um 
but so actually speaking on, on that topic of philosophers so so what are the who are the philosophers and the great thinkers that have uh, inspired you the most uh, when you've tried to solve this puzzle <laughs> yeah it's a tough question there's a lot of amazing philosophers um, and I would definitely point uh, people in the direction of Jean-Paul Sartre um, I think that existentialism has a lot to offer and his work is amazing to follow, and it's especially interesting in this context. Most people would sort of not make the connection, I think, but I think there's a lot of connections to draw. Um, but I would also think when we think about what is ethics and what are ethical truths, and and I think that Kant is a great great place to look to, Immanuel Kant. Um, I think that Many people just focus in on a very small portion of what Kant wrote regarding ethics, um, you know, like the categorical imperative, which is this idea that, you know, sort of the do unto others as they would have done unto you is probably yeah, the simplest yeah. expression of it. Exactly. Um, and don't use people, more or less. Mm -hmm. But what he talked about in terms of where ethics comes from mm -hmm. and what it means and also, more broadly, how humans perceive and think about the world mm -hmm. is also a very important context with which to think about the, these questions. So, you know, humans need concepts like causality. We need concepts like um, space to think about uh, our world, to, to, to comprehend our world, to, to have thoughts. And when you're talking um, about causality, you mean like a cause and effect, like one. Like cause and effect, yeah, exactly. And uh, it's absolutely necessary for the way that human thought works. But Kant's observation was that this does not necessarily then mean that this is true of the world. It's just true of how we think of the world. Mm -hmm. um, and and the way he ties some of those thoughts in together with ethics is relevant here because a computer may have thoughts that um, over the long run, and here I'm thinking long term, mm -hmm. that are not necessarily, you know, that don't have the same necessities that we do. Um, for example, we're embodied. You know, I can only be in one place at one time, but a machine can be many places at one time um, and can take millions of actions simultaneously. So the differences in how we experience the world are relevant in terms of some of these ethical questions as well. Um, beyond Kant, That's I would say that, yeah. yeah, I mean, there's a lot that Kant has to offer, I think, uh, the subject for sure. And it's, it's difficult to, to, to get through it because it's not the most um, easy philosopher to read, but there's luckily a lot of resources out there to help uh, help read him. Mm -hmm. But uh, the, other, the other three that I would point to specifically is artificial intelligence and philosophy. Mm -hmm. First, without doubt, is Stuart Russell, Dr. Stuart Russell in um, Berkeley. He's, uh, he helped write the textbook on artificial intelligence and okay. has done a lot of work on AI safety and um, has a lot of background in philosophy as well. Uh, second, I would say, is Nick Bostrom, who wrote uh, the book Superintelligence, also a philosopher. Uh, I think he's a philosopher over at Oxford. And he um, does a lot of thinking about kind of what we as humans should be concerned about from an you know existential threat perspective and talks a lot about some really interesting concrete ideas about where AI could go and and what it could mean from a philosophical perspective. 
And the last is Elizier. I don't know how to pronounce his first name, actually, Yudkowsky. Um, he uh, is a lesser-known philosopher that talks a lot about um, how an AI might evolve over time and how we should assume from the beginning we will make mistakes and how we can build a computer to be robust to those mistakes over time. So assume that this mission of AI safety is going to fail. <laughs> how can we design it to handle that, that failure? So you're saying that the machine would make a mistake, but then they would learn from their mistakes just like a human would, or, uh, or did I misinterpret it? <laughs> yeah, well, the, mm -hmm. exactly. Mm -hmm. More like we're going to fail at mm -hmm. explicitly defining things the way we expect it to. Mm -hmm. um, so how, how do we train it to be flexible enough to handle that that failure is one way of looking at it. I mean, he, he talks a lot about this in the, his, his concept called friendly AI. Um, and it just sort of, we need to work off the assumption that our designs will be flawed and that mm. uh, a robot or a machine will evolve over time. Mm. And then we need to think about that evolution from the very beginning and program for that evolution. And that's that's a crucial concept in, in this whole discussion. It's essentially... So Essentially teaching the, the machine to be adaptable, I guess. Yeah. 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 Think about programming a beginning, not an end. Hmm. Hmm. So planting a seed, not a not a whole tree. Um, and letting letting it be robust and flexible enough to develop over time. I think that's a crucial thing. I like how like this um, interview has been very uh, focused on the software and the like going back to how humans uh, are learning uh, more on ethics and it's been less of uh, actually ending up in an algorithm. So I think that's uh, pretty cool. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Good. Uh, but yeah, but it, I... it's complex, of course. Um, <laughs> sure. And there there's algorithms in there. I mean, um, cooperative inverse reinforcement learning is definitely an algorithm that um, that touches on on a lot of these aspects. Um, but you know, and there's recursive aspects to this. Reinforcement learning is definitely, in my opinion, my perspective, the domain from an algorithmic perspective where a lot of these ideas need to come to fruition. Mm. Um, I feel like it's sort of, a, uh, even though it's been around for a while, uh, it hasn't hit its full stride yet. And we're going to see a lot of that um, begin to change over the next couple of decades mm -hmm. as we enable machines to sort of be more autonomous and handle uh, changing circumstances more on the fly and develop decision patterns based on changing circumstances more. Mm -hmm. So we'll, I think that's, that's the domain where we're going to see a lot of this move from abstract topics to algorithmic development. Mm -hmm. that makes sense. Yeah, cool. So, um, I mean, um, in, in 10 years from now then, just uh, where do you think realistically um, we will be at? We're like, where has, um, what has artificial intelligence unlocked in our society? Um, sure, yeah. Um, I think that, We'll see a lot of changes, some mm. small and some big. Mm. So, for example, right now, the focus on machine learning is about um, big data, mm. which is why institutions like Google, 
and Apple and others can really, Facebook can make big strides because they can afford to collect all this giant data sets and move more towards um, unique and interesting algorithms. And the way the machine learning works now is it's kind of layered in the sense that I can train a huge model on a ton of data and then I can hand it off to someone and they can tweak it and use it for a completely different purpose. Um, and so that it, it, that will continue to grow. It's called transfer learning. So Google can spend millions of dollars or OpenAI can spend millions of dollars developing a um, brilliant model. Mm-hmm. And then I can, if they open source it, assuming they open source it or charge a small amount of money, I can take that model, adjust it to my purposes and do something completely different with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so this kind of, opens the doors up, the floodgates up to uh, to make it less prohibitive to develop really interesting AI concepts. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll see it grow a lot. We'll see, you know, conservative old school businesses start to realize the necessity of using artificial intelligence. We'll see uh, it kind of work its way into all sorts of things. We'll see um, small, you know, Internet of Things devices using something called tiny machine learning which enables um, machine learning models to be embedded in the device itself, no longer requiring it to have cloud connections um, that make all sorts of things possible uh, that were not possible before. So we'll also, we'll also run into some difficulties in the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the, the way in which image processing is being handled by artificial intelligence is a little, mm-hmm. little creepy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, we're, we're on the cusp. I mean, this is within the next few years of, you know, making in yourself look like anyone you want, sound like what you want, say what you want. We'll be able to generate um, content um, that's almost indecipherable from what a human wrote versus what a person wrote. In fact, there's an algorithm out right now called GPT-3 yeah. mm-hmm. developed by OpenAI that um, you know, there are students who are submitting papers in schools written by GPT-3 and getting A's, and they didn't necessarily write anything. Um, so as this expands, um, there's a lot of questions and concerns that that raises. How do we know what's true, uh, what we should believe? Um, the opportunity to just confuse people politically through means like Facebook and I don't really like the term fake news because I don't like the way it's been used uh, in the media sometimes. But this idea of tricking people becomes a lot easier um, and manipulating people becomes a lot easier when you have these tools at your hands. So in the next 10 years, I see those things come to fruition. Possibly driverless cars will become more Mm -hmm. ubiquitous as well. And people will be using that a lot more. Um, I think, though, the real concern especially related to what we've talked about in this conversation is more on the scale of like 40 to 50 years mm-hmm. where we'll start to see the potential for super intelligence. Mm-hmm. And then on a more pessimistic view, as long as, you know, a hundred years. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in potentially in my life, I have very confident in my daughter's life. We will see the rise of a new thinking thing in this in this world and i think that's extremely exciting uh holds a lot of great potential and mm. and also makes me a little nervous in certain ways as well um there's one last thought i wanted to to, to bring up if that's okay 
Yeah, sure. One thing that um, that also, uh, I guess, kind of is interesting to think about, a thought experiment, I guess, mm-hmm. is this idea of moral enforcement, right? Um, and how, you know, when we think about how do you ensure a computer will follow the morality you give it on the long run? And I think one potential answer to this question is to trick a computer essentially into thinking that it's being tested or that it could be being tested. Uh-huh. And, and so that it, it, when it makes a decision, it doesn't know whether this is um, an actual decision circumstance or um, a artificial decision circumstance in which it's being evaluated. And the reason I mention this is because I think about humans and I think about what motivates us to be moral. Mm-hmm. And like I said before, about 80% of the world is religious in some way. And when mm-hmm. we do something bad, many people are probably thinking, you know, oh, God, God sees this. It's a sin. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, Buddha sees this or whatever the circumstance. There's some higher mm-hmm. level that's able to see everything that we do mm-hmm. and our thinking and our motivation behind it. And I think that if we can at least present the possibility that that may be the case mm. with a computer, then we've provided a mechanism of control that would not otherwise be there. So just as a, a fun thought, all the computer would need for this to be effective mm. is just the possibility. So it just needs to occur to the computer at some point that this could be true, that this mm. could be the case. And that would be enough to enforce the problem, the, the, the circumstance. Mm. So maybe one day a computer listens to this podcast and has never thought of that idea before. It'd be enough for it to realize, uh oh, I better not do something. Otherwise, I may be, you know, mm-hmm. um, I may be being evaluated on some higher level. <laughs> it's a fun, fun little thought experiment to have. I think that's super interesting, and I mean that again shows like why, uh, if you're working in this high tech field, why it's actually relevant to learn more about philosophy and anthropology and uh, humanistic subjects um, to understand how uh, the behavior aspects of it as well. So mm-hmm. I think that I mean um, to to end off. Um, so imagine then that so obviously it's going to require some great thinkers across the world and some active work to make sure that um, artificial intelligence actually ends up um, uh, working um, in the way we want it to, 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 to optimize for well-being uh, across the world and for the planet. Um, if we succeed, um, and we obviously, again, a conscious effort, um, what does the dream world supported by artificial intelligence look like uh, in your mind? Uh, the positive dream world in my mind is one in which humans um, are able to be humans without worrying about survival. Um, where uh we're motivated by our passions, mm. not our necessities. Um, you know, there's too much, too many people starving on this in this planet. There's, mm. you know, we're destroying this planet. We've 
we are doing, you know, there's great economic injustices in this world. And I think, and I, I really do believe that perhaps one of the greatest opportunities to overcome that is to introduce a new thinking thing. Mm. You know, I've often wondered, and an analogy would be, what would happen if um, aliens showed up on the planet one day and um, started laying down the law and said, okay, all these nation states need to start working together. It would, in a weird way, unite everyone because suddenly we'd all be humans, not mm -hmm. necessarily Americans or mm -hmm. Germans or, or anything like that. It would be, we would just be people. And I think introducing a super intelligence, especially one that's, that's moral and morally motivated and able to think through complex moral circumstances, solving the, industrial problems that we have in society and, and finding solutions to those injustices could free us up to be just people looking out for each other and pursuing our passions, whether they're art or mm. music or any other form, any other medium. That's the sort of utopian, <laughs> I guess, vision yeah. I, I hope we can achieve. And I hope that maybe, I hope one day we'll, we'll be able to mm. see. Mm. Yeah. Nice. Thank you so much for this. Has been a super interesting conversation. Um, so, if uh, if any of the listeners are interested in uh, um, you know uh, uh, getting to know you more, um, like where um, where should they reach out to you, or where should they reach out read up more about you? So yeah, that's a great great question. Um, they can always look up a TED Talk that I've given, or they can go to um, lastgreatinvention.com, mm -hmm. uh, which is a resource that I've been building um, slowly over time, and uh, that's going to hopefully be a little bit of a hub for people to mm -hmm. share thoughts on this subject. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you so much for for participating today. Um, <laughs> It's Thank been great you. having you. <laughs> Appreciate it. Thank you very much, Maria. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. That's it for today. Thank you all for listening. I really appreciate it. And if you want to read up more about the guest, then you can go to the show notes to get all of the links. And also, if you like this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to the newsletter to never miss the latest episode. Thank you for today. See you in the next episode.